Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyse Ukraine's drone attacks on Russia's Black Sea fleet, anchored at Sevastopol. We discuss reports that Ukrainian troops have crossed the river in Kherson region. And we ask why the Kremlin has cancelled nationwide Second World War remembrance marches. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday the 24th of April, one year and 59 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, foreign correspondent James Kilner, and, joining us live from a European energy summit, our Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes. I started by asking Joe for the latest news from Ukraine. Hi there, folks. So to start with, the Crimean port of Sevastopol, the home of Russia's main naval presence on occupied Crimea came under a drone attack early on Monday morning. That was according to the Russian installed governor of the city, who said the Black Sea fleet had repelled an attack. His name is Mikhail Razvohev. He said, according to the latest information, one surface drone was destroyed, the second one exploded on its own. And he said no damage had been sustained. Interestingly, there's a video that we've seen from this explosion. But I think what's more interesting now is if you look at what analysts are saying at the moment is that there are actually new Russian defences that are on display. There are about six layers of physical defences being built around the port, which was once the home of Russia's uh, Black Sea fleet. But now Russia has basically diversified its uh, presence away from the port because the port is within contact of the Ukrainian military now. So yes, carry on that. The uh, passenger ferry terminals 
transport services were stopped in the area, but there was no immediate response to you from Ukraine. I have just gotten off the phone with Alexei Danilov, who's Ukraine's national security advisor. He didn't specifically mention the attack this morning, but he said, look, Crimea, especially Sevastopol, is well within our sights and within our range. So that kind of alludes to that, yes, maybe uh, the Ukrainians know more than they let on when it comes to these attacks in Crimea. So there's been some, also some more fighting, allegedly, in the south. There are reports, I believe, in the New York Times today that Russia was busy evacuating Ukrainian civilians from occupied areas of the southern Kherson region. And analysts have suggested that they are, there is um, geolocated footage of Ukrainian troops on the left bank of the Dnipro River, which is opposite the Kherson city, which was so famously recaptured in November. This again, was slightly denied by the Ukrainians, by Danilov, which is interesting in itself. Um, But analysts kind of do always say that that push is expected in the south to kind of cut off Crimea. And then we move over to Bakhmut, where a top Ukrainian commander has said his troops were holding the front line in the city of Bakhmut after Russia claimed its forces had secured two further blocks on Sunday. Um, we know the fighting is very intense in Bakhmut. Um, it's mainly Russians trying to push centrally now through the middle of the city in the hope of enclosing a small area on the southwest in the hopes of encircling the Ukrainian position there. Ukraine's leader of its ground forces uploaded a um, image onto Telegram, basically saying, back move front line, our defence continues. We hit the enemy often unexpectedly for him and continue to hold our strategic lines. Again, um, I won't give up too much information from this chat with Mr. Danilov because you'll be able to read it in the paper, hopefully in the next day or two. But he, he said, look, we're still in, we're still in back move and our presence is very much there. And then uh, there's been some more updates on the Wagner group of mercenaries. They have been ordered to shoot dead any Ukrainian soldier captured on the battlefield and to cease taking prisoners. The order allegedly came from Evgeny Prigozhin. He allegedly gave the order directly to his men. And there's a recording of a allegedly a thing to Ukrainian, uh, and it was after, it emerged after, there's allegedly a, two Ukrainian soldiers caught in a recording saying they were shooting a wounded Wagner fighter. Uh, Mr. Prigozhin said, look, we will destroy it. All of those on the battlefield will not take any prisoners. Thank you very much, Joe. James Kilner, can I come to you next? You've been on the Moscow desk over the weekend, so there's a a fair number of stories you've been covering. What would you like to pick out for us? Hi, David. Yeah, another busy weekend on the Moscow desk, as as we come to expect. The story I've just filed this morning on, on how MPs in Russia are going to more than double the income tax for Russian workers who are overseas. This is all part of their plan to make ahead of a potential second massive mobilisation of men in Russia. If we remember back in September and October, when Russia was mobilising for the first time since World War II, something like a million young men or young people fled overseas, mainly into Georgia, Armenia and Kazakhstan. And many of these people were remote or worked in, in Russia's rather highly thought of IT sector. And they, many of those, uh, those million odd people have stayed overseas and are working remotely. And the Kremlin is desperately trying to clamp down on that. They previously said that they're going to punish people who think they can just skip out of Russia and dodge what they see as their duty to defend against NATO. Over the weekend, I think we had the most important story. We had reports yesterday. These were geotagged reports from Russian military bloggers who 
who they're, they're fairly linked in with the security services, these guys that they're heavily subscribed to and, and followed. And they're generally, their intelligence and the way they look at the picture can generally be considered quite interesting, quite good. So they were saying that they geotagged Ukrainian special forces or Ukrainian advanced vanguard forces, uh, say crossing the Dnipro River, which is a huge river, which which marks the front line, the current front line between Ukrainian and Russian forces. They had geotagged these advanced forces crossing the Dnipro River in dinghies and setting up positions on what had previously been considered impregnable Russian territory or Russian-occupied territory. Um, when Russia withdrew from Kherson in, in November, and I, and I think Joe was there or shortly afterwards, they withdrew across the Dnipro River and they rather gleefully said, oh, now we can build much improved defense defenses, uh, which are going to include this huge river as part of our defense line. Um, and we know that since then, they have spent a lot of time and energy and money building a huge network of uh, trenches which crisscross this uh, this sort of this the Herson region, which is really the main or the last frontier to Crimea, which the Kremlin annexed in 2014. So we have this incredibly important military movement ahead of what we know is going to be uh, a large Ukrainian offensive in the next month or so, possibly, probably around Herson and aimed towards Crimea. And now we have Ukrainian special forces crossing the river, Dnipro River, apparently for the first time setting up positions. Vladimir Saldo, the um, Russian-installed governor of occupied Kherson, has come out and said this is absolutely nonsense. Um, if anything, the closest that um, Ukrainian forces can get to being on, on the river is, is grabbing a quick selfie before they get destroyed by Russian artillery. They have not been able to establish any so-called footholds. Etc. But there is so much buzz around this now, and it's also coming from uh, this military blogger community, which, which, like I said, are fairly well. They are pro-Russian. They're very grumpy with the way that the Ministry of Defence has uh, prosecuted their war in Ukraine. But then, nonetheless, they're still Russian cheerleaders. Potentially, very, very important uh, moment, I think, David. Thank you very much for that, James. James, can you talk to us a little bit about the story you wrote up over the weekend on the Kremlin cancelling the nationwide Second World War remembrance marches over fears they would have turned into protests over Ukraine war casualties? It seems like a big moment, that. Should we read, how, how much should we read into it? I think definitely a big moment, David. Um, I think really important this. This actually happened on Tuesday. The organisation linked to the Kremlin that runs these so-called uh, marches of the Immortal Regiment, cancelled these marches all of a sudden on Tuesday. It said there are safety fears over some of the marches taking place in places like Crimea and the North Caucasus, etc. And if one of these marches is not safe to go ahead, then we're going to cancel all of these marches because it's all for one, etc. That's the thing. We're all in it together. So if, if one can't go ahead, none of us are going to go ahead. And so they basically said, we're going to do an online thing. People are going to post pictures of relatives here in World War, etc., instead of having physical marches. Now, the Immortal Regiment is a really important part of, um, has become a really important part of the May 9th Victory Day parade by the Kremlin. It was conceived by a Siberian TV station in about 2011-2012 as a way for ordinary Russians to celebrate uh, their forefathers, their grandfathers, their great uncles, whatever, 
who fought in World War II as Russia called it the Great Patriotic War for the Red Army against Nazi Germany. And the idea was that they'd march down the street carrying photos or pictures of these dead heroes and wear their medals and generally celebrate them. Now, the Kremlin, after a couple of years of this going on at a very local level, the Kremlin realised this is a great propaganda opportunity. And it grabbed this whole concept uh, and did what the Kremlin does to things like this. It just goes full steam ahead and just smashes it with its own propaganda, boosts it, you know, uh, forces it down everyone's throat, that sort of thing. Tagged it, the marches of the immortal regiment, very emotive, etc., etc. This all builds into the Kremlin's key propaganda message of Russia being the victor of World War II. And now in uh, 2022 and 2023, that was again got to fight Nazis coming from uh, Europe, etc. And and so the, the idea with these main... So main life is really split up into two different types of parades. You've got the military parades, the biggest ones in Red Square, but other big cities have these parades as well. And then you've got the marches of the Immortal Regiment, which is sort of an ordinary affair, ordinary people in pretty much every town and city across Russia uh, will be will be holding one of these. Last year, I remember reporting on how they, they the Kremlin insisted that Mariupol, which had just been bombed into the ground, was giving a quick paint job and some of the, the windows patched up, etc., so they could put an immortal regiment down the high street there and make it look okay. And 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 I also remember reporting how the Kremlin had been paying people to go to these immortal regiment marches. So. They are really seen as a cornerstone part to, to make people feel involved in the living part of Russian history. So for them to cancel them is absolutely enormous. It is, it is taking away perhaps the highlight of the Kremlin's propaganda year. I can't put it in, in any more serious way. You know, you get the, the drudgery of the TV propaganda all the time, all the time, all the time. There's loads of data now suggests that's having an increasingly limited impact. Um, and you got all the advertising and the other various forms of messaging, but the immortal Red Room marches had been key to this. Now, uh, what had been happening in, in the last few years of these immortal Red Room marches is that people had not only been holding pictures of the Red Army heroes who have died, they've also been holding pictures of, of family members who died in the Afghan war in the 1980s or the Chechen wars of the 1990s, etc. So it become more of a sort of celebration of, of all and, so, and show of support for all Russia's wars. Now, the feeling is that the Kremlin was incredibly worried, and probably rightly so, that with this current war, their current war in Ukraine being so costly, and we're talking about counting numbers of about 200,000 dead or injured, dwarfing, absolutely dwarfing the numbers in, in Afghanistan, which went on for 10 years, and wars in Chechnya, which went on and off for several years as well. And they were very worried that suddenly all these pictures of young men who, who only died last week, six months ago, a year ago, would dominate these marches of the Immortal Regiment and absolutely skewer their lives that they're not taking many counties down in, in Ukraine. They're desperately trying to hide these county figures and they were worried that the Immortal Regiment was going to unveil their lives and so they had to cancel it. It's a real PR disaster for the Kremlin. And it has totally undermined all their propaganda plans for the year. It's, it, it is a big deal, David. Thanks, James. Can I ask you to talk about just one more story? Previously on the podcast, we've talked before about the uh, you know who, who actually goes to fight for Russia. And we've, we've said it's usually people f- not from the major cities, not from St. Petersburg and, and Moscow, but the far-flung uh, republics and other oblasts and, and cries. Um, there's been some discussion about the son of Dmitry Peskov, Vladimir Putin's spokesman. And 
some people have accused him of lying about his own war record in the last year. What's the story here? Yevgeny Prigrozhin, the, the head of the Wagner Group, popped up on Saturday evening and said that out of the blue, really, just in a sort of an interview in a car and as he was driving from some point to another in, 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 in the battle zones, that uh, Nikolai Peskov, the son of Dmitry Peskov, had been serving with his Wagner unit for six months in an artillery unit. And then the story just went quiet. And then on, on Sunday, all of a sudden, it, it transpires that Nikolai Peskov had given a, a big interview to one of the Moscow newspapers about his supposed service down in um, Donbass region. Now, as you said, this is remarkable for a few reasons. The first reason is that we've written at some length about how the Russian elite have gone, have really tried to protect their, their sons from being sent down to the uh, front line and how they, they even go to the extent of setting up like this drone battalion which operates dozens and dozens of kilometres behind enemy lines and, and they then get tired or dirty and they, they just have to sit in front of the screen monitoring stuff rather than doing any real fighting. But then all of a sudden we have the son of one of the most high-profile Russian elite. I mean, Dmitry Peskov, he's not a business owner, but he's, he's incredibly wealthy, he's high-profile, he's on the TV all the time, uh, etc. So the people know who he is. His son is his son is claiming to have, have fought down there in, in Donbass on the front lines near Bakhmut. The only photos that were released were, were typically of this person in military uniform with balaclava on and all you can see is his eyes. I mean, make of that what you will. And then the, secondly, the, 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 the other really interesting thing is he claims to have been fighting with the Wagner group. Now, if you remember Wagner, as we all know, is the Kremlin mercenary group being accused of terrible war crimes, killing people with sledgehammers. Now, as Joe was saying, they've, they've been told to shoot Ukrainian prisoners. And, um, and here we have the son of uh, the Kremlin spokesman saying that he'd chosen to go down to the battle lines, that's one thing, and he'd chosen to go down with Wagner. That is incredible. Uh, we've seen the sort of normalisation of Wagner as a fighting unit in Russia. We've seen the normalisation of mercenaries. We reported on how they've, they recruited from prisoners, murderers and, and, and rapists and drug dealers, etc. And then after six months, they get pardoned and then they go back to mainland Russia. And they often kill and murder. The grandmother of one of my contacts in, in Russia was, was murdered by one of these um, returning Wagner mercenaries a few weeks ago. So, so, so we know all about this. And then here we have, you know, this, this sort of elite guy, this sort of uh, very sort of wealthy, lucky chap, normalising Wagner again. It's just incredible. But just before we go to Francis, James, he's been accused of lying. The, the accusation is that none of this is true. Why is, why is that? So, yeah, the accusations of lying come from some military, Russian military bloggers again. And they are very, very down, as I said earlier, on the uh, Russian elite. And one military blogger has claims to have found Nikolai Peskov's car, his electric Tesla car, driving around Moscow during the six months that he says he was fighting down in Bakhmut. And this Russian military blogger also claims to have it on good word from Nikolai Peskov's mates that he loves the car so much he wouldn't let anyone else drive around in it, that sort of thing. Again, we just don't know. It, it's The photos of this guy down in Bakhmut, they're, they're so unclear. Um, it's so bizarre that he'd be fighting in a Wagner unit. And the story about the cars, 
and the, you know the Tesla cars and how it, it picked up driving fines, etc. As it whizzed round uh, Moscow in, in November, it just muddies the water even further. Thank you very much for that, James. We'll come back to you later for one more story. But Francis Sternley, can you give us some of the diplomatic updates over the weekend? Thanks, David. Significant diplomatic row has erupted between China and several Western countries over the weekend. But with all the talk of the upcoming counteroffensive, I'm actually going to start with what seems to me one of the major issues of the moment. And it's this fundamental question of how to arm Ukraine for the long term. We've reported, of course, on Ukrainian forces having to ration shells. And we know, too, that the Russian state has ramped up its own production. Yet we've not really seen Europe respond in kind, much to Kyiv's understandable frustration. This morning, the EU foreign policy chief has said he expects an agreement in the following days. That's a direct quote on a plan to buy ammunition for Ukraine. Mr. Borrell acknowledged that there was still some disagreement, but nonetheless went on to express confidence that a joint procedural agreement could be reached. I'll read a quote from him. I'm sure everybody will understand that we are in a situation of extreme urgency. I'm sure that in the following days we will reach an agreement. Now, I mentioned the frustration in Kyiv last Thursday. You Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba, he expressed frustration at, and he doesn't mince his words here, the inability of the EU to implement its own decision on the ammunition deal. And of course, part of the reason for that is, is due to these disagreements that we just refer, I just referenced there. For Ukraine, the cost of inaction is measured in human lives. Now, there'll be more on this story as we have it. But as I say, this seems to me an essential question. If the West isn't willing to arm Ukraine in the way that it promised and as the country clearly needs, then one has to ask why and measure the consequences of that. And that's a subject I'll return to later in the final thought when I'll try and talk a little bit about the counteroffensive and its geopolitical significance. But first, let's look at this diplomatic row that I alluded to earlier. In brief, China's ambassador in Paris seemed to question, extraordinary, the sovereignty not only of Ukraine, but of all the former Soviet republics, including the Baltic states. So what happened was on Friday after we broadcast, he was asked about his position on whether Crimea was part of Ukraine or not. And Lu Shei, that's his name, said in a French TV interview that historically it was part of Russia and had been offered to Ukraine by the former Soviet leader uh, Nikita Khrushchev. So he went on, and this is the really extraordinary part, he went on to say that the independent sovereign nations that emerged after the fall of the Soviet Union don't have effective status under international law because there is not an international agreement confirming their status as sovereign nations. Now, you can imagine the international reaction to this. Uh, Ukraine very quick out of the blocks to rebuke it. Uh, Zelensky's aides criticising the comments, calling them absurd. He says, if China wants to be a major political player, do not parrot the propaganda of Russian outsiders. He went on, all post-Soviet Union countries have a clear sovereign status enshrined in international law. That is factually true. It is strange to hear an absurd version of the history of Crimea from a representative of a country that is scrupulous about its thousand-year history. And, of course, that's referring to the fact that China is always very 
keen to big up this idea of continuity as opposed to, of course, what has actually been a very disrupted history, particularly in the past century with its own communist revolution and what happened there and the expunging of its culture under Mao and and, and thereof. But um, I won't go into all of that now. France also very quick to criticise these remarks. Understandably, it's very, I'd go as far as to say embarrassing, perhaps even humiliating for them, raises fresh questions about the faith Macron has placed in China to act as a mediator between Russia and Ukraine. Other rebukes from the Czech Republic, from Italy, from Britain, all basically saying the same thing, that it's totally unacceptable. And such has been this wave of anger that China has sought to clarify their position this morning, effectively doing something they very rarely do, which is dismiss the remarks of one of their figures completely. So they have said now that they respect the sovereign state state status of all former Soviet countries. Quote, China respects the status of the participating republics after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. China respects independence and territorial integrity of all countries and upholds the purposes and principles of the UN Charter. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, China was one of the first countries to establish diplomatic relations with relevant countries. Since the establishment of diplomatic ties, China has always adhered to the principle of mutual respect and equity to develop bilateral, friendly and cooperative relations. And then the spokesman went on saying some media misinterpret China's position on the Ukrainian issue and are sowing discord in relations between China and relevant countries. We will be vigilant about this. So, as I say, a very, very strong rebuke of the remarks, but many are positing this morning, really, whether it's indicative of... The, the 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 real Chinese position and asking whether the mask has slipped. I think if it has, it does expose a fundamental fault line between how the West views national sovereignty compared to countries like Russia and China. For Russia, as has been evident by the full-scale invasion, the democratic will of a population in another country is secondary to the will of the more powerful country that's impacted, which they believed, of course, to be then in them in the context of Ukraine. So the fact that Ukraine sought closer Western ties, as was mandated by various democratic elections, that, in the views of Russia, gave it no special right to do what it wants domestically. So uh, they believe that whether, for example, the question of whether Ukraine joins NATO, they believe that they have a right to be taken into account. And when it wasn't, it justified an invasion. And it does seem that China holds a similar view towards Taiwan, just as it does towards Tibet and Hong Kong. And I think one can summarise that view really as might is right. And there's, this is no longer the view, of course, of many Western countries. That was the case for the majority of European and Western history, one could argue. Uh, including here in Britain, but there's been a huge shift. And there are numerous examples now of where uh, European countries, uh, I can think of, of of the UK here, would be geopolitically profoundly impacted by democratic elections. Of course, we had a referendum here in 2014 about whether Scotland would become independent. Now, if Scotland had decided to become independent, that would have been well, massive. It would have had huge strategic implications for England and, and for the uh, for the rest of the Union. And it would have had, I think, really undermined our geopolitical sway on the world stage because of the geographical unity would not have been as strong. But you didn't find Britain trying to deny the right to have a referendum and you didn't see the right to of them questioning 
I, I don't think you would have seen them question the verdict after uh, the referendum if it had been in favour of independence. It's sort of this belief, I think, is now quite deeply rooted in European countries that a democratic election, even one that perhaps goes against the way that the geopolitical establishment wants things to go, uh, has to be respected. I was working in Parliament during the Brexit referendum and as fraught that was, you didn't see Europe try and deny the result. And so there has been a big change here. But that change is not really ever happened, I would argue, in countries like China and Russia, who still believe that their power gives them the right to dictate to other countries their future direction of travel. The West is not perfect in this regard either. But on these fundamental points, when measured by democratic measures, I think it's fair to say that there has been a profound change and one that is not recognised by Russia and China in the context of Ukraine, but was recognised profoundly by Western countries. But anyway, a bit of a... Francis, uh, Francis, sorry, very, very quickly. Can I just pose a maybe slightly provocative question? I mean, do you think to some extent this shows the limitations of Chinese diplomacy when it comes to this war. I mean, the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic was a founder member of the UN. China hosted the Olympic Games in 2008 with many of these countries. Who did they think they were playing against? Not real countries? I, do you, I mean, do, is it another little, piece, another little piece of evidence that shows that when it comes to understanding the region, China isn't necessarily on top of it? I mean, that's, that thought struck me when you, when you, when you saw uh, the 12-point peace plan as well. I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Yes, many would argue that China is not as sophisticated in the European theatre compared to in Asia or even when dealing with America. We've seen evidence of that on this podcast. And indeed, I remember reading pieces by officials in various different governments around Europe who have at times despaired by the remarks of Chinese spokesmen and private conversations that they've had with Chinese representatives. But I do think that actually to try and dismiss this as purely sort of a mistake of amateurishness is, is not an, it, it doesn't it underplays the importance of this. I think, as I was alluding to a moment ago, there's something more deeply philosophical at play here, which is that China has a different mentality on these questions than the West does. And however much they might be trying to dismiss these remarks for the world audience, as it were, for the international community, I think if you actually look at Chinese actions, they are so different that it is revealing of their true philosophy. As I say, if you look at Tibet, if you look at Hong Kong, if you look at the remarks about Taiwan and the sort of militarization of China as they seemingly prepare for some kind of diplomatic or military confrontation with relation to Taiwan, it seems indicative to me that whatever they're saying now, they are far more of the old fashioned view of the sort of the 19th century than they are of the early 21st. And there are many sort of China watchers who would agree with that view and would argue that the West often is more than willing to agree with what China is saying and thinks that that represents the authentic, pragmatic view of China. But more often than not, there are instances of where China doesn't do the pragmatic thing, that it does essentially what it wants and is willing to take risks just as Russia was with relating to with relation to Ukraine, because it thinks that the Western response will actually not be that robust. That's the threat, of course, with relation to Taiwan. But if you look at what happened with Hong Kong, 
it acted in the way and behaved in the way it did in Hong Kong because it believed that there wouldn't be the profound ramifications that perhaps there should have been, whether that be relating to sanctions or whatever. Though again, the West made strong words, but now is, if you see with Macron, making all sorts of overtures to China. So I think that this is actually something really, really fundamental here and shouldn't be dismissed as something that's purely just an error, a slip of the tongue, a misunderstanding in translation. It's something more fundamental than that. This is an experienced diplomat. I think he was formerly a diplomat in Canada. So he understands the West. He knows what our mentality is. And yet the fact that he felt able to make these remarks, I think is suggestive of quite a deep-rooted understanding or misunderstanding of, of what is going on at the moment. Thanks, Francis. Do you have one more diplomatic update for us before we go back to James and Joe? Just one last story, which I'll cover very briefly because I'd like to go into it more detail later in the week. This time it's a diplomatic spat between Germany and Russia. Lots of spats this weekend. So the Russian Foreign Ministry spokesman on Saturday has announced the expulsion of more than 20 German diplomats on a retaliatory measure for mass expulsion of Russian embassy staff from Berlin. And I'm wondering whether this is connected to a long read in The Washington Post laying out how the Kremlin is trying to build an anti-war coalition in Germany, marrying Germany's far right and far left. It follows a big investigation by the Post into a trove of Russian documents that they've got their hands on. As I say, I want to try and cover this in more detail later in the week and we'll try and bring on Dr. Thomas Clausen to discuss it. It has implications not just for Germany, but for many European countries because it unveils the Kremlin's strategy for trying to not only destabilise various European countries, but also, I think, to, what's the word, discredit the pro-supporting case for Ukraine among many countries in Europe. It's This is now fundamental for them, and I think they've found a way in which to try and do so. And so, as I say, we'll, we'll cover this more. I've spoken a lot, David, so I'll, I'll steal from Dom and say I'll take a pause there. Thank you, Francis. James, can I come back to you just for... Your thoughts on one final story you wrote up over the weekend. This is, it's absolutely horrific. And the pictures are as horrific as, you know, the description is the the top line I'm about to read out. Russian deserters are being imprisoned by their own army in medieval style pits with metal grills on top. Tell us about this story. This is really more of what we've, we've seen going on already. Russian military police seem to take a very, very tough line on people saying they don't want to fight or people having a drink, which, which is surprising. Uh, and previously they've chucked them in, you know, we know that they've chucked mobilised men who suddenly, you know, who don't really want to fight into caves and uh, left them there for days at a time. And they seem to have been doing, you know, they seem to have gone fallen back on this on, on this punishment once again. And they're keeping these uh, mutinous soldiers in, they're throwing into the pits with grills on. And I, w- I had to watch a couple of videos when, when you're doing this job at the moment, you're having to watch a lot of gruesome videos. And this was this was yet another one of uh, filmed in um, a very dank pit by this clearly desperate soldier and his four mates. And he said that they've been chucked into this hole uh, after going drinking one night. And they, you know, it was covered by grill, rainwater was pouring in, the ground was muddy. Uh, and he panned around and he saw his other four, four companions and they were all bloodied and bruised in the face. One was incoherently trying to talk. It was an absolute, it was shocking. It was absolutely shocking. And then there were some other videos giving a similar sort of rundown of, of, of the state of play. And, you know, nowhere can this sort of punishment be, I mean, Russia is a terribly brutal place 
and you see it on the streets uh, every day, even in central Moscow, you know, when you're living there. Russia is very brutal. It's a completely different level to Europe. But even so, these, these videos were shocking. Thanks very much, James. Joe Barnes, would you like to come in? I know you're, you're at an event, you have to run off. Would you like to just jump in and add your final thoughts? I just wanted to speak about another, the kind of the latest of the Discord leaks, which kind of shows, or appears to show, purportedly shows, the US's involvement in trying to talk Ukraine down from certain situations. We had the US intelligence last week appear to show that Washington was urging Ukraine not to strike Wagner targets in Africa. But now we have another document claiming to show that Major General Budenov, the head of Ukraine's military intelligence directorate, was planning for mass strikes on February 24th, which was the the first anniversary of Russia's invasion. They were talking about using, apparently, TNT to target seaports inside Russia, and apparently in Washington officials were secretly monitoring these plans amid fears that kind of these attacks inside Russian territory would trigger an escalation to the conflict. And this document uh, published by the Washington Post says, uh, with a dated on February 22nd, uh, two days before the anniversary, the CIA circulated a new classified report which said the HUR, so Ukraine's military intelligence directorate, had agreed at Washington's request to postpone strikes on Moscow. So they are suggesting that Ukraine had drawn up these elaborate plans to strike inside the Russian capital. Does it highlight a picture potentially between a growing sort of struggle, maybe a clash of opinion between the US and Kiev as things move forward? You'll be acutely aware that the Americans have a presidential election coming up next year, and the Republican field seems to be less favourable to Kiev and supporting Kiev militarily than the Democrats' side does. So potentially is there an argument that Washington is trying to reach inside Ukraine and influence their decisions more and more and more with the amount of technology and military hardware going in to Ukraine from the American side. So we know that the, the Americans have always sort of expressed this fear that escalation could be prompted by Ukrainian strikes inside Russian territory using Western technology. So this is potentially just another attempt to stop Ukraine from striking inside Russia itself. And just another example, and I think these, um, it's one of the more interesting of the Discord leaks. Thank you, Joe. What summit are you at at the moment, and will you be able to report back to us on it? So yes, I'm at the North Sea Energy Cooperation Summit in Ostend, a Belgian port, which kind of borders Kent, uh, the Kentish coast. And it is a group of nine European leaders, uh, including the UK these days. And they're, they're here to discuss kind of the creation of wind farms and energy platforms in the North Sea. But as we know, what's quite interesting is from last week, we were talking about the these Russian ghost ships, these spy ships in the North Sea, spying on Western critical infrastructure in the possibility of one day having to strike it as part of a kind of larger NATO versus Russia war. So while I'm sure the UK and others will be really kind of wanting to build new wind farms, new energy cooperation, actually security is going to be a major topic today. So hopefully I'm just going to wander down to see the leaders arrive and hopefully we can have a few quotes which I can relay tomorrow or another day about what they're doing to make sure that Russia or other bad actors are looking to damage 
Europe's critical infrastructure and basically take vast amounts of power networks off grid as we shift from sort of fossil fuels to kind of these renewable energies in the future. Well, thank you very much, Joe. And yes, it'll be very good to hear from you again uh, later this week on what you found at the summit there. Thank you very much, Joe Barnes. Let's go to our final thoughts then with James and Francis. Uh, who would like to go first? Thanks, David. I want to close with a piece by Simon Tisdall in The Guardian, headlined, Truce or Bloody Stalemate? It all rides on Ukraine's spring offensive. And he summarises very well, I think, the current mentality amongst many Western diplomats and politicians with regard to where we are at this moment and the likely way this war will end, or at least how this year is going to go. And the essence of that is that he believes that people are um, reaching the conclusion that Ukraine will launch a counteroffensive that will not be outrightly successful in defeating Russia and that there will perhaps be some great gains or maybe some modest gains, but that it will not be transformative in the way that, of course, many people hope. And that as a consequence of that, that the West's will, um, unity on Ukraine will begin to fracture. And that with China talking about peace, Russia talking about peace, the prospect of a very long war being faced by many leaders that they might begin to force Ukraine to try and come to the negotiating table and agree to a peace that will be unhappy for them, but also for many other European countries, perhaps uh, most notably the Baltic states, um, Poland, of course, and perhaps Britain and even America as well. But that the political geopolitical reality will mean that a more realist um, view of how this war needs to end will become more popular. And I don't have time to go into all of, of course, the various scenarios of, of Endgame today. It's really for another episode. But I want to raise this piece because, as I say, in my view, it, it does condense the direction of travel as perceived by many at this moment. And that matters because I think it is impacting, as I was talking about the ammunition earlier, it is impacting how countries are behaving now in terms of the support that they give to Ukraine. And all of this really does underline something I was saying last week, which is the importance optically of the counteroffensive. I read experts who say that we shouldn't be expecting the spring offensive to be announced, that we won't know, that it won't be like a kind of D-Day, that it will become obvious perhaps over a sustained period that something is happening, but it won't be that shock that we had with Kharkiv and the other counteroffensives last year. And that may be true and, and advisable in terms of military strategy, but it will come as a consequence. And I think if I were advising Zelensky, I would suggest that there needs to be signs of visual successes on the battlefield, videos of, of soldiers advancing like we saw last year, which really just transformed our understanding of where what Ukraine was capable of and led to a huge reassessment of what the West needed to do in order to support Ukraine. I think if that if we don't see that, then this view that I've just articulated of this sort of scepticism, uh, the kind of war fatigue and and everything else will perhaps become more likely to proliferate. Um, but the plus side is, is that if we do see more of the counteroffensive success that we all, of course, hope for, then things will shift again in a profoundly positive manner and in a way that could lead to, a, again, a huge renaissance in those who believe that Ukraine can win this war outright. But 
at the moment, I think there is an air of pessimism because of the of seeming stalemate in Bakhmut and elsewhere. And those who are not following the war as closely as we are perhaps would read the headlines and think, well, this is not a war that's going to change anytime soon and not much is happening. And until that changes, then I think we can expect that malaise to continue. And so the counteroffensive has to show with headlines and with visuals that this that something is changing and something is happening because I really worry that if it doesn't, it, it could have big long-term and negative consequences for the war. Thank you, Francis. Well, James, it's feel, it feels like it's been uh, quite an eventful weekend. We've had uh, drone, uh, Ukrainian drone attacks on the Black Sea Fleet, reports of landings across the Dnipro, uh, fighting continues in Bakhmut. What are your final thoughts? I think you're absolutely right, David. It has been another uh, action-packed weekend from, from the front line. Um, if I may, very quickly, I just want to uh, pan back a bit to give Togolf listeners and, and, and readers who are interested in the wider picture another quick insight from Central Asia and the South Caucasus, where yet again we have an example of Russia lashing out like, like the big bully that it is, it really lashing out in frustration, this time at little Kyrgyzstan, a, a small nation in, in Central Asia, a small, smaller mountainous nation in Central Asia, who who've decided last week that they wanted to ditch the Cyrillic uh, alphabet that was imposed on them by the Soviets um, in the 1920s and 1930s when they came and recaptured Central Asia from Imperial Russia. And they wanted to uh, to do something different. Lo and behold, the, uh, the Kremlin didn't like this. The Kremlin is very, very touchy around Russian language and any sense that Russian cultural language is is going to be downgraded, etc. It does not like it at all. And it lashed out at Kyrgyzstan and has banned uh, dairy products on Friday. Now, as all our listeners here know, Russia did exactly that to Armenia earlier this month. Armenia was moving towards joining the International Criminal Court. And again, the, the Kremlin hated that and found a health reason to, to ban dairy from Armenia. And it's done exactly the same with Kyrgyzstan. Few days after it said it wanted to drop the Cyrillic alphabet, it found a health reason to ban Kyrgyz dairy. It is incredible. It's blatant. It's 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 really really gives our viewers and, and and listeners and readers a very useful insight into the mentality of the Kremlin and how they are absolutely frustrated that they see these little former Soviet satellite states trying to break away, trying to move to the west, trying to do their own thing, trade between Russia and Armenia and Kyrgyzstan and, and other parts of Central Asia and South Caucasus. It is incredibly important to these satellite countries and uh, the Kremlin is, is hurting them. So, so, so I, I wanted to flag that up. As for a final thought, we have the ludicrous, the, the Russian foreign minister who's just coming back on his way. He's just been on a big trip around some sort of pro-Kremlin the word. Ludicrous image on, on Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, of Sergei Lavrov, South American, Central American states, yeah, they, they definitely still exist. And he wanted to pop into the UN, which is based in New York, and, and, and have a few meetings there. And he was denied a visa by the US. And this caused absolute outrage from the foreign ministry and from the Kremlin, who threatened to retaliate by denying American journalist visas. They seem to have forgotten that they've already uh, arrested an American journalist, Evan Gershevich for spying and they they put him in their notorious prison. So the whole thing is ludicrous. The Kremlin is just out of control. It's lost all sort of sense of, of anything. How they can complain about 
foreign ministers have been denied a visa and threatening to retaliate against American journalists when they have an American journalist locked up on utterly bogus spying charges is incredible. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Emily Hill. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.